Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall. And we are joined today by Colorado Mesa University, President John Marshall. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great having you. You have been president now of the university for a couple months. How's it been going? Yeah. No, I've got it all figured out. So just kidding. Um, it's been a learning experience and and really a ton of fun. We have a, a, an amazing team. It's great to be back on campus this fall and see a lot of smiles and um, both metaphorical and literal sunshine and, and just has been a, a really lovely experience. Well, you are new to this role, but you are not new to Western Colorado. What is uh, unique when we compare this area to a lot of other cities and towns across the state? How would you describe the people, the culture, the ethos? Yeah, kind of a quintessential Western ethic, right? You see uh, a, a lot of folks with sort of that rugged independence where they really don't want um people telling them what to do, whether that's government or institutions or anything else. And so bringing that uh, level of independence into the ethic, into the ethos, as you said, you just have to, I think, track that as you think about coming alongside communities, schools, businesses, et cetera. You know, it's, it's a different thing to come alongside and walk with someone than it is to try and uh, show up and solve their problems. So, and and that distinction may seem like a fine one, but I think it makes all the difference in the world when you have the humility to say, "I'm I don't necessarily understand everything you're going through, but I'm going to come alongside and do the work with you." So, like Kelsey mentioned, you are not new to the area. You yeah. actually completed your undergraduate degree here mm-hmm. at Colorado Mesa University back when it was Mesa State. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually completed my undergraduate here. And I met my husband, Brandon, when we were here. And I believe you also met your wife, Lindy, when yeah. you were here at CMU. Yeah. Can you tell us about how did you guys meet? Yeah, we met in biology class. Um, I may or may not have been nodding off in the back of the room. At the time, not because of the professor. The professor was amazing. It was all, of course, my shenanigans. But we, um, yeah, we met as freshmen and and got acquainted and started dating more seriously. And and in fact, um, we were married prior to leaving college. So we were pretty young. But truthfully, we just kind of both knew that was, you know, there was no use holding off because that was what was coming and and uh, ready to start a life together. And my wife grew up here. I grew up on the other side of the hill, but we're both Colorado kids. And so there's a, I think, a deep connection, not just to um, Colorado, but to Western Colorado in particular, because this is really where we've uh, both begun and, and, um, and, you know, made a life for ourselves here. So, so yeah, we've, we both have a lot of affinity. We were both pretty involved as students and undergraduate and um, yeah, so Mesa is just kind of part of the fabric of our of our family. And so you completed your undergraduate degrees here. And Mm -hmm. then I know that you moved over to the front range. What made you come back? What brought you back to Western Colorado? Well, a couple of things. Um, I think we'd always both aspirationally wanted to be back here, but you know, as you're young and, and, um, married and kind of young professionals, it's sometimes it's easier to be in the big city. There's more opportunity. It's a little bit faster paced. But we, when we had our first baby, we kind of looked up and said, this is, this is crazy, an hour commute for both of us. And it uh, just was not, not what we wanted for our family. So we came back here really with not much of a plan. 
Um, my wife was going to go back into into some private industry, and I was coming to join her when I had an opportunity to come back to to my alma mater and start raising money for a project that that I cared about. And you know, the rest, as they say, is history. There's a sentiment out there that if you really want to make a difference in the world, you need to start in your own your own backyard. Hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's something kind of romantic about going and doing work in some far off corner of the world. But the truth is most of the greatest needs are right in front of us. And and that's harder work. And I'll, I'll use this valley as an example. Um, there are there's literally hundreds of kids who need foster care as just one example right here in our backyard. And you talk to couples about adoption and things like that in the far reaches of the world. And the truth is that there's hundreds of kids who need a home right here. And, and that's just one example of this idea that, that we have to show the discipline to look right in front of us. And it's hard because in some ways, right, there's this contempt of familiarity where we, we drive by the same street corner every day and we go by that same um, dilapidated building on the weekend and, and it just becomes part of it and we take it for granted. And, and we have to be able to continually see our own um, community, our own neighborhood, our own uh, town with fresh eyes to be able to see those needs that are right in front of us. And I think for Lindy and I, that's really been, that's really been our story. Raising our family here is, um, you know, pouring into the community here, pouring into the needs that are right underneath our noses. And, and so that's part of what's kept us here in this community and, and why we're so passionate about it. Because for a community as large as it is, it really acts like a small town. And the upside of that is that you really can make a difference in a way that is very difficult. You know, I grew up on the Front Range and, um, you know, Grand Junction's roughly, the Grand Valley, I should say, is roughly the size of Boulder over four or five times the landmass, right? But, but it operates very differently. It operates like a town that, as it is, is more isolated. And so we have to rely on one another to do big things. And once you learn that ethic, once you learn that cadence, you can really accomplish a lot. You look at what President Foster was able to do with local governments and economic development partners and regional partners, um, and that model is is the right one. And once you understand how that calculus works, right there, there really is a, a way to go about this in the right way and the wrong way. And you can trace this in Grand Junction with successful leaders and people who've not been successful. And it really comes down to how well did they understand this dynamic of engaging with the local community or not. And so for us, um, I've learned that lesson many times over. And um, I think for CMU's future, it's one where we will absolutely double down on our commitment to all of our community partners and, and continue that legacy. So my husband and I have talked at length about, you know, when sometimes it feels like our world is crazy and everything's kind of falling apart that we should focus more here on our community. And so mm. we've talked about, you know, a couple of different nonprofits that we want to start getting involved with sure, and volunteering sure. with. And I think bringing it back down, like you said, to that community level can mm-hmm. help it make it seem not as bad as I feel like when you're on Facebook or Instagram yeah. or watching the news, it can seem so terrible sometimes. But yeah. if you focus really in on your community and how you can make change here, it makes it feel like a little bit better, I think. Yeah, it, this, is an, this is actually an understood dynamic with, um, in academia. Right? If, 
the truth is the world is a really big place. And at any given time, life is tough. And if you harvest all the tough things happening around life and pipe them through your phone at any given time, it is an avalanche of bad news. And it's why, in some regards, we have to stay focused on what's in front of us because the truth is life is beautiful. And as you engage with people, yes, it's tough. And at any given time, someone in your family, someone in your friend group, someone in your workplace is probably going through a really tough spot, but it's not everybody all at once. And that's one of those items that I think we've got to continually remind ourselves. So as you think about uh, a campus like this, if we focus on what's going on on campuses, plural, all over the country, it's too much. If we focus on our culture, on our students, on our faculty, on the work we can do with our community, um, it starts to feel a lot more manageable. And you take the good with the bad. We're going to make some mistakes, right? As a campus, at any given time, a small town of 10,000, we're going to have some students who do something. We're going to have a faculty member who does something. We're going to have an administrator who makes a bad choice. Uh, but the truth is that that is manageable because there's just you know, the, the flip side of it is there's so much energy and excitement and optimism and positivity that's happening every single day on this campus. And when you put that in context and don't allow all the sort of these outside pipelines to be, frankly, distorting your view of what's happening, well, well, now we start to gain some momentum. Now we start to see a more clear and I would argue more accurate picture of what your reality actually is. So you're driving this ship, you know, there's, yeah, like you said, 10,000 students walking this campus right now at this moment and how a lot of them are, you know, fearful for the future. They do see that there is this dark world, but how do you as a leader and as, you know, a, a person who's walking alongside them, tell them that like, Hey, it's going to be all right. We we've got this. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing we do is we've got to be, um, just relentlessly honest and transparent with our students. And, and I'll give an example of COVID as, as one of the ways that we can do this. A lot of campuses around the country over the last 18 months have used this opportunity to protect their students. And I think that is 180 degrees away from what we want to be doing. Our task is not to protect our students. Our task is to educate and empower and to bring them along and give them agency and put in front of them the honest, difficult decisions that they've got to make because we need them to show leadership. If at the most challenging moment that they experience as young adults, and, and for all of us, each generation kind of has that moment. For my generation, it was 9-11, it was right, where we kind of woke up one morning and said, wow, the world is very different than what I thought it was, right? Our parents had their moment. Well, for this, this generation, COVID is, I would argue, going to be one of those moments where they, they are opening their eyes and saying, wow, the world is different than what I thought it was. So the question is, when the chips were down, when the most challenging thing was in front of this generation, how did we assist them in preparing the next generation of leaders? Did we tell them what to do? Did we take away all the barriers? Or did we, be, did we engage them honestly about the, the severity of the challenge and their role in it? showing agency, saying, you are the CEO of your life, and I need you to show leadership on this. You're capable of reading a peer-reviewed journal. You're capable of listening to all that's going on around you and making the right choices. Now, some have called me naive or Pollyannish about this conversation, but I don't think there's another alternative because the other alternative is I'm going to mandate that you do this. I'm going to prevent you from doing that. 
And what you wind up with is young adults who know that they're not fulfilling their full potential. They know they're not really engaging in the leadership that they're capable of. And as I was chatting with a group of students last night, my comment to them is, um, the, the question is not what I'm going to do to protect you. The question is, what are you going to do to grow into the person that we all need you to be? What are you going to do to fill that gap of leadership that we need your generation to fill? Um, and the way we do that is by engaging people, being just absolutely honest with them about it and, and really putting them in charge of their own decisions. You know, we hear, we see, and we read about the polarization in our country from yeah, COVID-19 vaccines to climate change and everything in between. Uh, do you think it is a university's responsibility to bridge that divide? Well, university is this really unique time in life where young people come together, um, maybe the only time. Because think about it, as adults, we tend to vote with our feet. We uh, are... We are, work with colleagues who have um, a college degree or not, or we, we live in a neighborhood where people tend to look alike and make the same amount of money. And they, we just start to organize ourselves in a way where people that look different, sound different, come from a different background, worship different, different skin color, love different, we, we tend to start naturally selecting away from that, okay? College is one of the few places where we are forced to engage that in a really meaningful way. And it's why there's so much meaningful life growth that happens in college. So if Sheep Rancher from Meeker sits down and it's the first time they've ever seen an African-American in person, and now it's a roommate, think about the growth that's happening in that regard, right? A, a, a kid that's coming out of Southwest Colorado who's never met somebody who's gay, and now all of a sudden they're on a team with someone, right? Those are, those are life experiences that they will be richer for and we just don't get those enough when we're sort of out of college and into our adult lives. So yes, I think universities have an obligation to do that. And moreover, I would say many universities, whether it's Oral Roberts and Hillsdale or Berkeley or Boulder, are self-selecting even in the university context, which I think is an absolute tragedy. CMU still has the ability to continue to bring diverse voices, diverse perspectives, people from totally different walks of life together and make meaningful growth um, for those young people. And that is the only way that we can move ahead as a country and heal some of those divides is when we're ready to listen humbly to one another's perspectives. I love that you say that. I was talking to a student yesterday and you know, it was about vaccines and she had said, yeah, I, I wanted to get a vaccine, so I went and got one. But do I think that, you know, the person next to me sitting in class needs to get one. No, I don't know their background. I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know their life experience. And mm -hmm. so it was really neat to, to hear that from a student. Well, and, and that, that same level of humility that we also don't know their medical history and whether they even can get a vaccine. And so part of the construct has to be, you don't know everything about me and I don't know everything about you. And that learning from each other has to be part of the journey and that learning from one another has to be part of the growth. And if we blow by that, if we start coming to this place where Caitlin, I know what's better for you and your family. Um, well, well now we got a major problem and the more that we can trust one another and ask each challenge each other. Okay. Because I also think, I've got an obligation to challenge you. You know, Kelsey, have you written, have you read this recent article about um, vaccines? Have you read this recent article about 
uh, immunity or whatever the case might be. And the truth is that anything complicated and worth doing in this life is, is going to be nuanced and tough and messy. Um, that's how relationships are. That's how communities are. And it's how this pandemic has been. But the truth is that, that we are going to respond better and we're going we're gonna to grow as a community. We're going to be better as a campus if we're able to do that hard work together and not simply give up and, and embrace sort of bumper sticker style sloganeering and take the shortcut. That's not a path to, to success. And so I think all of us believe in the power of higher education and we believe in the mission of CMU. And I think a part of that is that we are a cultural hub for the region. Yeah. Um, so we see people from all different backgrounds, um, political parties, they all gather together in one room to watch a play or listen to an orchestra. So what do you think it is about the arts specifically that bring people together? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. The arts, I mean, there's a few things in this life that bring together virtually everyone. Sports is one of them, um, but the arts is vital in this, and the arts does it in an even more more direct way than sports in some ways. Sports kind of um, maybe sometimes sucks the oxygen out of the room for cultural reasons, but the truth is that the performing arts, not only do they bring together people from diverse backgrounds, not only do they create a space, which they do, where you and I may have voted for different people in the election, but we can have this peace, this detente, this connection with one another as we enjoy, um, whether it's you know one of Beethoven's pieces that was, uh, frankly, without uttering a word, one of the political catalysts of the mid-19th century, or whether it was um, you know a play by one of the ancients, like Aristophanes, who's writing plays that were social critiques that were delivering through comedy these really lovely, challenging messages about war and about women's rights and things. And this is happening, by the way, in fifth century Athens. It's always served that purpose for us. It's always been a way for us to tell a story that's hard to deliver otherwise um, and to do so in a way that brings people in. And, and so for us, I think arts, there's a lot of university campuses, by the way, that are cutting back. Even in Colorado, around the country, you look around and they're cutting these programs completely uh, because they're expensive and, they're, and they tend to be lower enrollments. But this is a vital part of our community. If you, if you look, you will not find a thriving community that doesn't have arts. You just won't. It doesn't exist because it, it becomes this full expression of the human experience. So whether that's through music, whether that's through play, um, and so part of that challenge for us as a community is really how are we embracing the arts? So one of the ways we're going to do that is by, um, really leaning into this last legacy facility over at Robinson theater. It was built in 1968. It has served this community and this campus very, very well, but to draw a, a fine point on it, that was the year that Sidney Poitier starred in guess who's coming to dinner. Right. And in that moment, that was a time when in the country um, there were still a dozen states in the South where interracial marriage was illegal. It was literally illegal. And that and that film coming out came out at a time where the country and the courts were wrestling with this challenge. And it put in a fantastic, you know, movie feature length film. Um, it put a sharp point on that and continued to drew, draw the, to the nation's conscience why that was such a problem. 
those are the issues that that we continue to face. And so Robinson Theater was built in that moment. It served its purpose well, but it is time for us to turn the corner for the next 50 years um, and really put a flag in the ground around how do we allow the arts to continue bridge building in this community and in this region. Um, and not for nothing, uh, there aren't facilities like this in Western Colorado. If you look at all the great facilities for performing arts, not surprisingly, they're all up and down the I-25 corridor. We've got to change that. Uh, we've got to put a flag in the ground and continue to grow and embrace the arts in this community. I think you make a really good point that Robinson Theater and the Moss Performing Arts Center is not just for the campus community, that it's a cultural hub and center for our community and even those outside of Grand Junction and Palisade and, and Fruta. So I think it's you know, an important piece of Western Colorado. And so I'm glad to see that we've got a focus there. Yeah. I mean, if you think about Grand Junction as the capital of rural Colorado, which is basically what it serves as, um, you know, it's a two and a half hour drive from Craig down to Grand Junction, right? It's a four hour drive to get from Durango to Grand Junction. It is not conceivable for those folks to make it to the Buell Theater or to the Betcher Concert Hall in the Denver Center for Performing Arts, but it is possible for them to get to Grand Junction. And, um, and we've got an obligation to keep filling that space. You mentioned that a lot of programs are cutting the arts and, and I wonder, you know, when I think about the sciences and, and engineers and, and, you know, you, they go through these courses and, you know, it, it's, it's highly important, but where do you think humanities plays a role in those? Mm. My faith teaches this metaphor of the body, the human body as representative metaphor of the community. Right. And some elements are the feet and some elements are the hands. I kind of see the arts as the heart. They're this um, this life giving why, because, you know, the engineers know how to build that building and the the architects and the designers are going to make it you know, going to add aesthetics and add function and all those things, right? And the mathematicians will make sure that, that we get those calculations right. And the physicists will make sure that the loads and the steel and all those things are right. But the question is, why are we building it? What are we trying to accomplish? What is it in our lives and in our community? And, and the arts do that, right? They sort of serve as a heartbeat in many ways, whether it's music or um, plays or, or acting or whatever the case might be. And, and I love that metaphor because I think it really drives home this idea that one, we all are interconnected, right? Artists and engineers are not, um, this is not an either or and which is better. It's a both and, and we both, and we need them both for the body to function right. Um, so something like that. I'm just thinking about how you know, we all listened to, to music probably coming in this morning, mm. you know, and we all do have a, have a feeling when we hear, we all listen to different musics and different genres, but we all get that feeling. And, and I think it's amazing to see that the, the arts are still thriving and they're alive and well. Well, it's, it's funny. We had a group on campus a few weeks ago and, and um, one of the songs that uh, one of our artists sang was an acapella rendition of U2's In the Name of Love, which, of course, traces um, the death of Martin Luther King Jr. And my observation in that moment was I can teach a student in middle school or elementary school about the life of Martin Luther King Jr., and I can tell them what happened at that Memphis hotel 
or I can let them hear that song and get punched right in the chest because they feel it in a way that that you just don't get in a history book. And that's the kind of texture that the arts can bring to life. The arts also have a way of um, giving light to different points of view. And so I'm thinking about freedom of speech here and how, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. depending on if it's a, it's a, if it's a play or if it's, if it's a song, there's, you know, a lot of, even, you know, even comedy, there's a lot of areas we can hit on and, and that the, the right to do so is really important. And I know that CMU adopted the Chicago statement. Um, can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in particular, I think we're in a moment right now where we're wrestling with all these difficult issues around racial justice. And, um, and the, the truth is if we don't protect the speech that we find most offensive, well, the next speech that's going to get restricted is probably ours, because what we're really talking about when we use terms like hate speech is we're talking about speech that we don't like. And, and you always, always in this conversation are going to get back to, well, who gets to decide? And so if you start to curtail and if you start to make judgments about what speech is acceptable, you do two things. One, you establish this um, norm that we are going to determine the haves and the have-nots around speech. We are going to make sort of broad, sweeping judgments. And the second thing we do is we put in danger minorities because ultimately in a democracy, what happens is the majority decides what's appropriate. And those ideas and mores change. So in the 1960s, um, that might have been Malcolm X on the receiving end of censorship by a McCarthy or by a Nixon. And while today it might be somebody on the right getting speech restricted by a Bernie Sanders or an AOC, the truth is that those are two, that those are the exact same problem. And so the discomfort we have to embrace is all speech being protected, all art being protected, all of those things is as um, offensive and objectionable as I may find a piece. The truth is that by protecting that, I'm protecting my ability and your ability to continue to express dissent, which as our founders have talked about is maybe the ultimate form of patriotism. I just had this thought and it's kind of the the opposite of this, but uh, on social media, a lot of times you see people um, commenting that, oh, you, you aren't speaking on this topic or this issue. So you must be against it or for it, you know, whatever side is, is the wrong Silence side. is violence, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, well, one, it's manifestly wrong because all of us, uh, process differently and to state the obvious, some of the deepest thinkers are those who are going to quietly listen and reflect and process. So silence is simply that it's somebody thinking, processing and, and taking that in. Um, and, and you actually don't get to decide how I express my agreement or disagreement. That is a form of speech in and of itself. And so um, it, it gets back to this question of we have to extend each other the ability to express political speech in particular in whatever way you deem fit. And you know what? That may not be popular. And you may have to face the challenge of your neighbors and your family and your colleagues, and that's the way it ought to be. If somebody's out in the middle of the quads screaming objectionable things, the right answer to that is not to censor and arrest them. 
It's to come alongside them and say why those ideas are bad. It's a great learning opportunity for us to promote better ideas and more speech. And that has to be our future. If we allow the social media construct around unfollowing, shouting down and mobbing on people um, and literally removing them from platforms because we don't like what they're saying. Well, I, at some point, who's watching the watchers? We've, we have to continue to hold that ground, especially as a university campus. So we've talked about a lot today, um, but one area I want to make sure that we can touch on is career and technical education. So Western Colorado Community College is obviously a big part of CMU. Yeah. We have a really unique relationship. And I know yeah. for myself, I love that we can literally serve any student's need. If you're looking for just a couple courses, mm-hmm. if you're looking for a certificate, all the way up to doctoral programs, we can pretty much serve whatever educational needs you have. Yeah, yeah. So under your leadership, where do you see this relationship between CMU and WCCC going and maybe more broadly career and technical education and how important it is? Probably brings us back around to our first question, Kelsey, about what what about this region and this place do you need to understand to be successful here? And one of them is that it is an incredibly diverse set of views. And and look, if you're looking to serve a region that is going to be disproportionately um, a lower educational attainment rate, meaning fewer adults with graduate degrees, fewer adults with bachelor's degrees, et cetera, than our friends in some of the urban and suburban centers. And that's true, by the way. We do substantially lag behind our, our peers around the state in terms of adults with um, a four-year graduate degree. Well, the question becomes, well, what then? If you're dealing with a family who hasn't earned a college degree yet, or what we would think of as a first-generation student coming to us, the single biggest predictor of whether a student gets a college degree is whether or not their parents got a college degree, in particular, mom. And if that family doesn't have a college degree, well, the truth is there's major cultural and familial barriers to to achieving it. There's barriers for everybody. It's difficult to get a college degree. It's expensive, all those things. But when you add this additional cultural barrier, it becomes nearly impossible. It's why in a region like this, we've got to provide multiple pathways. A four-year degree in the arts or in engineering may not be the path for everybody. But let me come alongside you as a young person and say, what other um, aptitude do you have? What other passions do you have? Is it welding? Is it machining? Can I help you figure out how to provide for a family with one of those skilled trades? Absolutely. Those are folks that are going to make a very good living and, by the way, serve a vital role for our community. And so back to this metaphor of the body, we need everybody pulling in the same direction. The part that we have to demand as a university is we cannot be okay with them doing nothing. Okay, so whether whether it's a, uh, a technical certificate or a, a trade or whether it's going on to get, um, you know, teaching or law enforcement or medical field, we just have to continue to demand as a community, we want more for our young people. It doesn't have to be a four-year degree, but we want more for our young people. So some kind of post-secondary credential where they can accomplish what they want in this life, they can provide for their family, they can continue to lift up their community. And we can continue to try and push back on these challenges that persistently are a problem for us, like number of kids on free and reduced lunch in this school district, mental health challenges, crime rates, all these challenges that come alongside. The antidote to that is more people with education. Well, I think you hit on a really important 
point that it's vital. These career and technical education and professions are vital to our society. So, you know, I know even for myself growing up in Kentucky and when you're thinking about going to college, community college is kind of seen as a secondary choice or a mm. less than option. And mm-hmm. I think we've been mm-hmm. working really hard to change the conversation around that and to show that welding is important, culinary is important, nurse aid, they're important people and they play really important roles in our society. And it's not a less than, it's actually a more than I would, I would argue. Yeah. And you can make a really strong economic case for this. If you're a smart business person as a 17 year old, you might ask the same question that one of our top donors asked the other day, show me all your career and technical vocational programs, show me how much it's going to cost to get them. And then show me how much money I'm going to earn when I walk out. In other words, How much return on investment am I going to get and how quickly? It's a great question. And a lot of young people are asking this question. They say, well, I could go get a master's in education and be a high school principal. That's an important job and we need more really good ones. But I can also do two years of welding, own my own shop, be making 80 grand a year within four years. Before that other, that our first example has even hit the workforce. This person's been earning, um, has been earning a really strong salary for a couple of years. So it's there's a really strong business case for the vocational and trades. Um, it's not just, uh, as you say, working through some kind of a value question. There's a lot of value there, both for the person earning that credential as well as for the community. Some critics pose the question, is higher education worth it? And I think this entire conversation says that higher education is more than, than the than the degree, you know, yeah. you get out of here and it's not just a piece of paper. You are a well-rounded citizen. Yeah. There's, I think it's so vital. We continue to have that conversation that we're not just talking about how much is your credential worth. The question is what are all the ancillary things that come alongside that civic participation, leadership, health outcomes, good heavens. If all we cared about was trying to reduce some of the most serious health outcomes in our community, you would make the case because it is highly correlative between healthy lifestyle um, and things that you pick up along college. And some of that's just gravity. You can't help but, um, you know, read all the the things that you're going to read in undergraduate experience and make healthier life choices by and large. So there's a hundred reasons why we think an education matters. I think our challenge is how we continue to make it relevant, make it affordable um, and make it something where everybody here is welcome. You hit on health and I think we can't leave here today without talking about mental health sure. and you know, obviously in our, our region, we see high rates of suicide and, you know, COVID did not do any of our young people the benefit of the doubt there. And so coming back to campus was a high priority for CMU. One of the reasons being people have to have to be with one another. They have yeah. to get out and move and see and talk and learn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this notion of, um, responding to the pandemic early on where we were all going to kind of lock ourselves up. And I understand why some of those policy choices were made for a short duration early on. But the truth is, even something as silly as masks has consequences. When I can't see your face, when I can't exchange it, there's been you know research around young children in particular and how badly they need that, um, that interactive experience. The truth is that, yeah, we're going to have to wear masks at some point points in this. And we know that if you wear it correctly and it's the right type of mask, it can be very effective. But let's not pretend that that doesn't have consequences socially and from a mental health standpoint. And so it's part of our approach this fall is if 
you are going to limit young people's ability to progress in life, to enjoy the fullness and the richness of a young adult's experience in college and that rite of passage. It better be a darn good reason. Starting the year off, we had um, all of our freshmen in the gymnasium, right? Maybe, I don't know, 1,600 kids or something like that. And there were some on social media who criticized and said how irresponsible to let these young people be in a gym without masks on. Well, as it turns out, every one of those kids had been either vaccinated, uh, had protective immunity, or had recently, um, within hours, tested negative. And so the question is, why wouldn't we give that to them? We have the technology, we have the know-how to keep them safe. And the other reality is that we've learned a lot through this pandemic. And so I think the, the construct can't be about, well, why wouldn't you isolate, mask, and take those things away from the students. The question is, why would you? And it better be a really, really compelling reason. So we'll continue to watch the evidence and the data. And if things shift and things are in a space where where we do need to implement some restrictions, well, we'll do that. But we will always do that in this balance of harms construct where we understand there are consequences when we take away young people's freedoms in their experience in college. And so you mentioned data, and I think that's a really important piece for us to hit on, that we were lucky enough to be here. Well, I shouldn't say lucky. There was a lot of work and strategy that went into being, <laughs> to making sure we were here on campus the last yeah. couple semesters. Yeah. But because of that, we have so much data that is now driving our approach to COVID and the pandemic. So could you talk a little bit about that data and kind of what we're seeing, at least for CMU? Yeah, I think one of the things we learned last year, which as you point out, was was not just a falling up the mountain routine. It, it really, it came down to a lot of uh, good advice from a variety of public health and medical advisors and ultimately just hard work. I mean, it just takes a lot of hard work to pull off big things. So here we are a year later and we've learned a lot. We've got access to good technology. We've got access to genomic sequencing. We've got access to um, the ability to see exactly what's going on in any given point, whether it's in uh, a sports team or a residence hall, we can see what's happening. And so we can make um, really granular data-driven decisions rather than these sort of broad sweeping dictates that um, almost always are going to result in not very good outcomes. So it, it requires... Um, patience. It requires constant vigilance, but that evidence and that data really does allow us to make much better, more precise, and more immediate kind of decisions. Well, before we let you go today, I'm going to throw you maybe a slight curveball. Okay. So recently, probably within the last year, I think I got some of the best professional advice I've gotten from a boss. Oh. And he told me to come to him with solutions, not problems. And I'm like, it's so simple, but it's so true. Like, hmm take the time to think through, okay, what is the problem and what are the potential solutions and then present those to your boss so they can help maybe navigate the direction that you're going to go. And like yeah, I said, it was some really, might call that leadership. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was so simple, but it has stuck with me and it's honestly changed how I work and think. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering for you, what's maybe one of the best pieces of advice, whether professional or personal that you've received? Um, that's a good question. Maybe I'll try and attack it this way. I, I think this, this last six months for Lindy and I have been some of the most um, scary, challenging, faith-growing, um, but exciting and fun months in our lives because we, 
went way out on a limb, not knowing how that was going to go. And that meant, um, that meant having to do all the, the things that we know in life matter, which is um, drawing closer with our family, having really open conversations with our kids, leaning on colleagues and advisors and mentors and, and really being um, really being willing to walk a path that you, you don't is, is incredibly uncertain. You know, I think you talked about that early on, Kelsey. You got students who are looking up and saying, man, I don't know what the future holds. My answer is, I get it. Um, it it can be incredibly scary and unnerving, but the truth is that there's no intimacy without adversity. So we know that to be true. And the other thing, I guess, that I've had to rely on over these last several months that I hope um, that my family and colleagues will continue to always remind me because I think it serves all of us really well is this deep humility that we've got a lot to learn from each other. And that while, um, you know, you're a competent professional, uh, you know what you're doing, there's so much more to learn. And so as we engage with our colleagues and our family and our relationships, you know, that humility of, of not assuming we know what that person is bringing in their day. We don't necessarily know what's happened in their lives, in their experience over the last week, whatever the case might be. And that humility allows us to engage in, in such a way that hopefully draws out the best in one another, whether that's the best idea, the best response, more empathy, more compassion, more innovation, more creativity, more problem solving. I think all of those things are unlocked through engaging each other with this sort of deep sense of humility that um, I, I don't have all the answers. And as long as we stay in that space, I just think, I just think things go so much better. Um, so yeah, something around that. Well, President Marshall, it has been a pleasure. I feel like I have grown and learned so much from you in this short conversation today. <laughs> well, likewise, I appreciate you guys uh, allowing me to have the conversation and uh, your your talent and skill at these interviews as a parent. So thanks for letting me be part of it. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. This is the See Me Now Special Edition. You can find us wherever you get your podcast.